I'm John B. Uh, and I am Sishet K. Faber, although I am considered a John by many local, state, prefectural, and federal governments. Yikes. Uh, and I'm Jim, and this this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. John B., would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? If you're listening to me for the first time, you can just catch up. Um, nothing to plug, really. Let's let's not uh, <laughs> hem and haw. Nothing to plug. It's okay. Nobody new listens to this show. And Sishet K. Faber, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, I'm Sissette K. Faber. I've been on the show a bit before, and so I'm going to say that you can probably catch up, and it's okay. I'm going to plug air conditioning. Oh, it's yeah. really great on hot days uh, for survival, I would, would recommend. And air filters. Yes, air filters as well, yes. Yesterday, there was a there was a fire in a steel mill in Oakland, and the entire East Bay smelled like like the back of an open TV. Oh my CRT. <laughs> so yay for air filters. We're so, so glad we had those brush fires because everybody bought air filters. <laughs> Thank you, COVID, for giving us uh, N95 masks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't get much um, like uh, wildfire stuff here in Japan, but we do get like um, PM 2.5, which is this particular matter from China referred to as like yellow sand. Oh, just like in, you import it? Yeah. It goes up into like those like the upper atmosphere and then it comes back down. Wow. Yeah. So it's a thing where you got to like shake off your laundry and stuff and you're supposed to like wear a mask on some days outside, but yeah. That sounds unpleasant. Fantastic. Yeah. You can't really see it and I've never had a problem with it, but yeah, I probably don't want that in my lungs. Yeah. Here in the U S we only export pollutants. So it's highly recommended practice. Well, you're welcome for all the smoke Canada. <laughs> oh, but- we imported some. Oh, we did, did we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a few weeks ago. Oh, maybe I got that reversed in my head. Thank you, Canada. <laughs> Are we ready for some topics? Yes. Ready as I will ever be. Uh, so I said, Faber, your topic is the human body is more similar than I'd like to shitty software. Yeah, this topic has kind of an explanation, but one of the things about computers when you're into computers is that you explain it to people and then you use a lot of like really bad metaphors and comparisons. So people will be like, oh, the RAM is like the short term memory. And then the hard drive is like the long term memory. And then like, oh, the CPU is like the brain. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the, isn't, well, the RAM's not inside the CPU. I mean, it has a cache, but like, come on. And then like, it just kind of all breaks down. But I worked in the immunology space in academia for a few years. And one of the things about immunology is that it turns out that your immune system kind of works like a shitty antivirus. Like your innate immune system has like T cells and its whole job is to recognize like things that are you and things that are not you just from small patches. And then uh, for your acquired, your adaptive immune system, it does something where it's trying to recognize like things that you fought off before through also small patches binding like on with, with proteins. And so it's, what it's doing is some sort of like signature based, very stochastic thing that ends up and you'd be like, oh man, doesn't this have like, how does that even work? Doesn't this ha- cause like big problems? And it's like, yeah, it causes some of the same problems as computer antivirus, where like if the computer antivirus gets popped from a security standpoint, like it can take down the machine. And you have a lot of examples where the immune system itself gets popped in like humans. And so you get things like rheumatoid arthritis, you get lots of long COVID stuff, which is probably an immune system issue. It's just shocking that it would work that way. 
mm-hmm. and also have the same problems. And um, it just comes down to like, we're all kind of built on the same software platform because of DNA. Like humans have a bunch of DNA for things like breaking down like chitin in bugs. And we just never used by us, but we have it because, you know, we descended from things that may have used it. Right. So it's just like, it's it's shocking to me that it, that it works like that, but it, it does. I want to defrag my colon. Can we do that? <laughs> I like the I like the idea of defragging it because frequently people will want like a cleanse, like to fully clean it out, right? Yeah. But you want to like you just want to like rearrange. I want to alphabetize all the bacteria. And also for uh, mycology, all of the funguses too. There's all these fungi in your in your gut too. I only want the most delicious fungi in my butt. <laughs> oh no. How do you know? <laughs> well, listen. Uh, there are professionals that, that take care of this. You have to use the anal sampling mechanism. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the the Whitman's anal sampling. Wait, was that a joke? <laughs> we talked about the anal sampling mechanism. We have. The, <laughs> yeah, we, we did talk about it. I forget if Whitman's made it into the whatever. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember the name Whitman's, but that's uh... yes, the the Whitman's anal sampler. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> but, but it does sound like a shitty band from like two thousand three. Like oh, I'm I'm really into my self indulgence and anal sampling mechanism. Yeah, I think that was like the first thing I said about it was that it was kind of like a French DJ. <laughs> yeah, and then then Jim, you had like a follow on. No, oh, we're going to talk about that after. Never mind. Uh, no spoilers. No spoilers. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so antivirus is a good one because obviously it's named after the human body. <laughs> we have viruses and uh, you know mechanisms again. So what a what's some other shitty software that has analogs in the human body? Like what's what's our Bonzi buddy? Oh man. <laughs> Bonzi buddy is um adware that nags you. Um, it also like, like resists being uninstalled. I feel like dreaming is that way. Like <laughs> yeah what what the hell are dreams for? I can I know that based on a podcast I listened to which is oh, let's hear uh, it. So the explanation was that um, your visual cortex is one of the most plastic parts of your brain and is very prone to being rewired even after short periods of not using it. And so the way that your body protects your visual cortex while you're asleep is to just throw garbage data into it that your brain then interprets into dreams. And due to feedback and the way that like the you know neural cascades work, that mm-hmm. it eventually feeds back on itself to where... You know, people can control their dreams through lucid dreaming sometimes, then also that um, dreams can tend to follow some kind of narrative that makes sense, even if they started from nothing that made sense in the first place. Wow. I think that's what my printer drivers are always doing. Yeah, they do that. <laughs> They're the most plastic <laughs> thing and they just do whatever the fuck they want to. Uh, things just happen or don't. Yeah, my inkjet wakes up at like five in the morning every morning and just like cycles some ink. Like it doesn't spill any. But it'll like, it'll like, it's like the thing is haunted. And we used to live in this like one room place. And so like, it would sometimes wake me up. And the first time it happened, I was like, oh man, things haunted. Like we should get rid of this thing. And then it was like, oh no, it's just keeping the the ink flowing. So the nozzles don't get like crusty or whatever. Oh yeah. It's gotta be at 5 a.m. though. It's the optimal time of like the optimal humidity or whatever to to reflow the ink cartridges i don't know it's weird because it is sort of scheduled but i think that they timed it that way because it like is some kind of maximum distance between when you might use the printer again or like close to when you might use the printer again but for for far enough away that it's like not going to get crusty yet but cycling it now like if you printed something at 5 p.m the previous day 
there's probably some rationale, like probably not a very good one, but it's probably some rationale. Yeah. Well, the other part of it would be that like, probably you don't keep the printer in your bedroom. You keep it in an office, like a human, like a regular office goer. Yeah. Now it stays in my office, but you know, in, in Japanese lifestyle, sometimes you only have the one room. <laughs> right. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta put the printer up and take the dinner table down when it's time for dinner. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Sometimes in California, real estate lifestyle, uh, same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All these, all these landlords, they say it's a one bedroom when they mean it's a studio apartment. Not the same thing, landlords. Are we ready for another topic? Can we think of any other shitty software that's in our body? Like, is there an equivalent of hair? Like, undesirable hair on a computer? <laughs> <laughs> Which one is um, big rig over the road racing? What part of the body is big rigs over the road racing? <laughs> Now the appendix <laughs> for a while my phone an android phone was like growing a new copy of a of a, a shortcut to a certain file every day every day a new shortcut would appear and like on my on my phone i forget what you call the the, de- the equivalent of the phone desktop after a while they started like having the default android icon with a little green little green man instead of having the 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 icon of the file it's like the app didn't exist anymore. Was this like a thing? Was this like some dodgy thing you installed from an APK? Like, are, are you pirating? Are you pirating things? I'm trying to remember what it was, but no, it was like I think it was a normal piece of software. Let me see if I still have some of these files. Oh yeah, it was it was my files folder. It oh. was just like how here's how you look at your files and on Android. And I'm pretty sure like Android has in the Play Store. There's a bunch of like file manager software. I'm pretty sure this is just the one where you look at files like using the operating system, like using a app built into the um, built into Android. Yeah, that would be built in. I recommend Total Commander on Android to look at. Oh, Total Commander. That's that's the clone of Norton Commander, isn't it? It is. It's a real blast from the past, but it, I think it's different on Android, but they do steal the name maybe. But yeah, right. It's It's kind of a weird vibe. All right. Now we got to talk about Norton Commander. I loved Norton Commander. That was a. Uh... That was an incredible piece of software. You could like, you you had the command prompt, but then you could also select files with the arrow keys and then look at them with F3. Yeah. And by default, it had like the two panes, right? So you could like copy from and paste to. I, I, I figured out later, that's what everybody else loved about Nord Commander. Yeah. <laughs> I never used that feature. Um, I have used it since in like situations where like I need to, to do a lot of copying between two folders. And like the Windows, uh, Windows Explorer is not good at that. But whatever the Norton Commander clone I, I happened to get did the, did a good job. But like I liked Norton Commander enough. It was a 16-bit DOS program, so it stopped working uh, with Windows 2000. Uh, but I was working for a while on like a Norton Commander clone in DJGPP. What is DJGPP? Oh yeah, sorry. It's it's a, a, a port of GCC to. MS 30 to 32-bit MS-DOS. Oh, okay. I got it. I got pretty far in it, but it got to the point where like, I realized my choice of development environment kind of screwed me because 32-bit DOS can make calls to look at uh, the Windows file system and get the long file names. But there is a... God, is this is this what thunking is? Is this the term? When <laughs> I think it... If I'm, if I'm, I'm going to say it, and if I'm right then this is this is what happened uh it had to thunk to to 32 bit and back uh every time you read f- f- file information from from windows 
And so file operate, like uh, filling the screen with a directory full of information took a very long time. And so, yeah, that was a core feature of windows for a while. Yeah. Like when windows went 32 bit, they did it by using like these shim layers. And there mm-hmm. was a period where it was like on XP, we would have to like go back and forth between them because they had stacked these shim layers to get the desired effect. And I don't think it was corrected until like Windows 10. <laughs> that sounds right. At some point, I think when they went fully 64-bit, like a 64-bit versions of Windows could no longer run 32-bit DOS programs. Oh, um, so good analog. So like DNA is a lot like the Windows registry. There's like, <laughs> or like the library folder on a Mac. Yeah. I just in general, I think um, building up a piece of software over time where you just add layers and layers of cruft and never delete anything, that is a great um, analog for DNA. Yeah, for of like course. For how, yeah. how we evolved, which which segues nicely into our next topic. I think the human body should have comments. That's, uh, that's all I'll say. <laughs> I think we're working on that, but they're like not written by the developer. <laughs> uh, my topic is the origin of hiccups. I'm just going to read this. Tumblr post that I'm linking to. The special thing about hiccups is that you have them by default. There's a special region of the brain that suppresses hiccups. Yes, hiccups is the default. No hiccups was an ad hoc addition. Why would your body want to hiccup by default? What purpose does that serve? Well, none for you, but it was very important for your ancestors. Hiccups are a fish reflex. They are a remnant of the convulsion that fish automatically perform to pull water over their gills. When the system was repurposed for lungs, we eventually evolved a workaround that tells the gill twitch not to fire anymore. When this fails, boom, hiccups. It's just your fish nervous system trying to be a fucking fish again. That makes too much sense based on me watching fish in an aquarium. Yeah. Like you've had hiccups too. So if you hadn't ever, then maybe it'd be less reliable. But does this make the thing where like you drink water to get rid of hiccups more or less plausible? I was thinking about that when I read the that Tumblr post before the show. Yeah. And I think it makes it both in some ways, because like there is a thing where you can kind of mind over matter your hiccups. Anytime someone has hiccups around me, I just say, yeah, just don't stand for it. That's what I do. Well, that's kind of what my wife does to me. Because <laughs> there's a Japanese thing where you're supposed to recite this uh, this little poem and take sips of water in between each line. Oh, between yeah. each word. That sounds like a classic hiccup, hiccup cure. Yeah. And it kind of, it works, but I, I wonder if it works because it's distracting you. But I also wonder, like, maybe because you are putting water down the pipe that it's sort of resetting your brain, that your your brain kind of gets into the wrong mode, re, like stops stopping that reflex that makes you hiccup. Right. And then by just putting some water down there, you're, you're telling your brain, like, Hey, can we, can we get another chance to maybe like tamp down this reflex again? Right. Do fish have a, I wonder how the, the gill reflex, how fish feel about it in terms of how we feel about hiccups, if they feel anything at all about it. Like, do they have reverse hiccups? Yeah. Or do they have any, do they have a similar, <laughs> do they have something Don't similar? Don't take 10 small sips of water or you'll stop breathing. <laughs> do they have something right. similar in their brains that, uh, that they hate as much as we do? Some sort of reflex. I don't know. Yeah. Are dolphins fish? Because uh... there's a whole chapter in Moby Dick about it. We, we don't have time for. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Classically, they're not considered fish, but then classically, they also are considered fish. But then in the new thinking that uh, nothing is a fish, but then we are all fish. We're all jamming for long periods of time on stage. My wife read this book. I think it was a book 
now I can't remember called there's no such thing as a fish. It was called fish don't exist. Fish don't exist. So you, you know, this book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the premise of the title at least is that much like trees, fish is not like fish aren't like a, a species or a, you can't like group them all under the same umbrella as being related to each other. They're just all, it, it's a, it's a survival mechanism that they've all, all those species have happened upon to be like scaly swimmers. Yeah, too many things have gone back and forth throughout like the the record of life on the planet that, that it's not meaningful because so much uh, we we share so much with things that live in the water that it, it it's sort of it's a weird distinction even though it makes intuitive sense. Right. But like on a and I I worked in a shark lab for a while as my second academic job and the last one before I I made the switch. Just, just, just a moment. That's uh, that's like the coolest sounding job. Shark lab. It was kind of neat. Yeah, we had we had like snapping turtles and we had sharks. And um, I I didn't go into the office a lot, but probably um, you know, a couple times a week. And uh, we, not like giant sharks though. It wasn't like deep blue sea. Like we had we had small sharks, and I, I got to see uh, an axolotl up close, and that was cool. It's pretty good. Yeah, and um, in in that realm, they just kind of considered things that they were studying that lived in the water fish. Sure. Yeah. No matter what they were, nobody really cared about the distinction because the conversations they were having were like, okay, what are the body plan genes in this shark species? Tell us about the body plan genes in humans that are shared and what does it mean? And so on a certain level, they just stopped considering it meaningful. So that's how sort of, I had heard about the book fish don't exist prior to that too. Um, and yeah, in my experience, it's just not, not super meaningful. Yeah. What am I going to put in my aquarium? Well, you have more. You have more options now. You could put a hot dog. Anything that lives in the water. That hot dog that's, lives that's there true. now. That's a fish. A little animatronic diving helmet guy. A fish. <laughs> Is a fish sandwich a fish or a sandwich? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it can't be both. <laughs> what is a tuna roll? Is a tuna roll a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. If it's the American st- style of roll, then yeah. Just yeah, just to be coy, I'm leaving it. Leaving it ambiguous, yeah. <laughs> just to <laughs> be coy. <laughs> oh no. Um, if you were coy, <laughs> you'd be fish. No. <laughs> just to increase the level of vagueness and piss off all my customers, I don't actually specify what kind of tuna roll it is, and I, I read the person <laughs> before they order. And if I if I think that they are thinking it might be a more sandwich like thing with a kind of a bread type of carbohydrate, I will give them the like the sushi kind of like tuna roll and then the opposite for other people. Yeah. That's yeah, way better than flipping a coin. Just, just do your best to, to mind fuck everybody. Uh, I think all I have left to say on the, the current topic is I'm glad I haven't started hiccuping yet. Uh, just from reading it. Is, are, they, are they contagious for you? Uh, Actually, should there be a content warning on this topic for people who like, for whom this is like an info hazard? I hope you were listening to the episode in reverse, dear listener. Um <laughs> No, I, you know, historically, I don't think they're contagious for me, but it feels like there have been one or two times. Yeah, I don't know. But for some reason, uh, you know, here I'm, I'm worried reading about this and uh, just meditating on the concept of hiccups is going to suggest it to me and induce it in me. Right. But the, the odd thing is, is that there's no way to do the content warning, actually, because my thought process during the past like two minutes of conversation was that like, I don't know if hiccups are contagious like that, but I do know what is. And then thinking about that thing, I maybe <laughs> want to do that thing. And so 
you can't i don't think there's any way to content warning for like sympathetic like congratulations you all just won the game yeah exactly it's <laughs> about to say i just lost the game oh <laughs> i i play the variant where you win <laughs> ah misere game we got buzzers we got winners we're a proper podcast now we're a show yeah one of these days i'll take notes uh are we ready for another topic i think so uh john your topic is 20 years ago there were three real books about video games that weren't strategy guides and now there are hundreds yeah so I know like through the years when I've looked at the library or stuff, I'm like always looking for books on my personal pet interests. And it seemed like for the longest time with video games, you would find almost nothing or things woefully out of date, which can be cool in and of itself. But, you know, how to beat the Atari home video games, which I have how to beat the video games somewhere around here. I don't have it at hand, but it's around here. You know, neat historical artifact, but not really what I was looking for. Right. Not very contemporary. Um, the only book I could think of that wasn't a strategy guide would be like Game Over right. or some other ones about like the history of Nintendo. And uh, yeah, wasn't that the book that like made Nintendo decide to never give interviews? Yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> I haven't read it, but, you know, you'd have that and then you'd have like a handful of strategy guides from the 80s. And if you're lucky, you know, browsing at the library, you might have a strategy guide for some random. That's another thing. When you, you see the strategy guide selection at a public library. Like just on the shelves, they probably have more in the overall collection, but it, sometimes it's baffling what's available. Yeah, there, there was there was Marianne Buckles PhD thesis about adventure games from 1985. Yeah, like you probably wouldn't find that on shelves though. Right, so it's either like strategy guides or ac- you know academic kind of or history kind of or those type in program books. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I ever. I don't know if those would be shelved in the game section or I think in terms of library, because I, as I probably mentioned on the show before, I volunteered at a library for uh, a number of years. Right. I remember in the nineties and early aughts, I remember seeing a bunch of like how to make computer games books on bookshelves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then for dummy series had one and, um, but yeah, in the last 20 years or so um, probably is on demand print and, you know, vanity publishing and stuff have, gotten more mature we're finally starting to get books from like enthusiasts who grew up with this stuff or in like a more general interest uh kind of realm like i have two right now uh holding up for the camera for great audio lemmings the ports oh wow Uh, so yeah this is a print on demand book that um discusses you know the differences between every port of the the game lemmings the puzzle game Lemmings, famous on um, Amiga and computer systems. Damn, I want that book. Yeah, well, they stopped. He stopped selling the uh, the print on demand version. You can find it on Arc. You can find the PDF freely. Okay. Um, but but the but the actual physical version is out of print. But it has, you know, it has the map layouts and stuff in it too for the certain levels. Um, what I'd like more than this book is for fucking Lemmings to be available again. Mm-hmm. It's owned by. It's one of the weird one-offs owned by Sony where they've put out, you know, a few sequels or whatever, but like Definitive Lemmings, you know, uh, Digital Eclipse, if you're listening, somebody from over there or, I don't know, Danny or somebody, <laughs> get in touch. Let them know. Lemmings the ports. Get Sony uh, into that. Yeah. And then like, um, you know, th- through like Amazon print and stuff, Hardcore Gaming 101, the website came started doing book their articles in book form. So I've got the Konami Shooters book here. These nice, detailed, colorful books with write-ups about actual, you know, detailed write-ups about video games and what they are. And, you know, not just a history, not just, 
you know, academic stuff and not strategy, but just kind of this overview type thing, diving a little deeper. Yeah. yeah almost like those Leonard Malton movie books. Right. But, but, you know, even a little further in depth than that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, I've got good news for you. There's a game coming soon on Steam called Crazy Lemmings. Oh, fantastic! That's the developer is Rosiaev. Sure. Wait, we'll see what else is what else they've made. They made a game called Dave in 2018. There's also a Dave demo. I like Whoa Dave, but uh, that's a that's a different. <laughs> Not yeah. This is like a, a knockoff of Whoa Dave, presumably adaptation of the movie the 90s movie days yes where an ordinary guy becomes president which just turned 30 and for some i always remembered part of the trailer but could never remember what movie it was from until recently but yeah back to back to the book thing so i think like probably boss fight books was the first uh through the gate in terms of really kind of i mean their their whole model was the 33 and a third record series kind of you know one book about one game and the the format you know would change depending on the author you know what they decide to focus on so some of them i haven't read any yet i have some of them um in ebook form yeah those are um wildly variable in quality sure as well as in form like i remember reading uh i think i thought the zzt one was excellent um and then i read another one i i I would feel bad if like this got back to the author but like i read i was reading it and i was like yeah if this was like a like a, a high school report on the game i would give right. it a B plus yeah i think i think i might know which one you're talking about just because i think it achieves some level of uh oh yeah do you think is a famous one is is it the mario 3 one no no uh, no that's another that's another one that's uh that's not get not great <laughs> yeah so you know there's a few of those i want I, I keep meaning to get the spelunky one because derek you wrote it himself oh yeah that one was also very good but but i think that did a lot to actually like start getting these things out there you know kind of a different paradigm um and now uh limited run has their own imprint which is just cranking them out now you know and there have been a few others um art of atari and things like that but yeah it's been nice to actually see what you would see for other interests like movies or you know other media interests or hobbies um it's finally kind of filling out that same space where you know if you're looking in the magic section or the sports section in your bookstore or library video games are starting to get that same kind of level yeah i wonder if it's one of those things where because video games and computers sort of grew up together in a lot of ways like a lot of early online conversations and a lot of early online stuff. There's a lot of things about video games, like, you know, development of net hack. And mm-hmm. so I wonder how much of it was just not considered important to publish in a book form because it was like, Oh, if you want that information, the best place for, for it is somewhere on the internet. Um, like there used to be fan sites. Like there's a really good lemmings fan site. Like I think it was Dean Onich was a great lemmings fan site back in the day um, that had like a lot of that information from the book that, uh, you held up about like differences between all the versions and all this stuff. And yeah, but, but now that we're so far past, like from the beginning of video games that, and a lot of that stuff has fallen off of the internet that like, yeah, there's probably more of a need now to actually like capture it in a way that's a little bit more in a way that's maybe going to last a little bit longer, like in a more formal way. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just the whole pop culture rise that we're seeing with games in other places, right? Like movies, we're finally getting a ton of 
wildly successful game movies and stuff. And the reason is that our generation that grew up with games is now the people making that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or or we have kids now and we want to show our kids. Like right. my yeah, we watched the Super Mario Brothers movie last night, like my daughter and I, and she really liked it. Like she doesn't she likes games a bit. Um, but because and that was like the first one of the first movies she's watched all the way through because her attention span is bad because of the YouTube. <laughs> but because she's played Mario Kart and she's played Super Mario Odyssey and she's like she knows what the blue shell is. There's like so many like it, it feels comfortable for her that she like she knows what's going on. How old is she? Uh, she's six. Yeah. Okay. I was I was going to make the comparison. Like Winston also recently just learned how to watch movies, uh, but hasn't played any games. But like, it makes sense that like like I, at six years old, I expect that he will have been playing video games. Yeah, I started my daughter on video games very early when she was about three. Mm-hmm. Um, and on Mario Maker, I made it like, like just the simplest level, like jump over one Goomba and like hit the flag. And there's some coins if she gets good at jumping. And then from there, Mario Kart was really good with all the assists. And then the assists slowly melted over time to where she can now play and get first place without any of the, without any of the assists. So yeah, I didn't I didn't think about it. Mario Kart, because it, it does have a, like some really like you can you can basically just let it play itself yeah it's very handy for when she wants me to play two player and i want to stare at my phone <laughs> <laughs> yeah Ger- jeff gerson's been talking a lot on his podcast his daughter's kind of going through the same arc with mario kart <laughs> yeah started her using the assist modes and stuff and uh yeah i didn't think about mario maker as like building simple levels for kids that's a very what a, what a great way to use that you know platformer games are so attractive but they're very hard for you know younger kids and you can really tune it that's pretty great. Right, yeah. Yeah. Like, like specifically to teach her the skills, like make my own tutorial for Mario for her. That's awesome. I wish I had the patience for any of the creating games. Any recommendations or? I haven't read any since like the Masters of Doom era, like the like the mid 2000s when mm. we started to get some of these books. But for, for, for me, I just don't read as much anymore generally. Sure. So it's kind of a tough sell for me. But I really, I really would like to read the Derek Yu one because, like, Derek Yu is somebody that I followed for a very long time. Like, totally b- back when he was making like Diabolica and like stuff like that. Yeah, that, and, that was that was a favorite of mine. <laughs> yeah, and so like it was crazy to me when I found out about Spelunky. Like, I found out about the XBLA port because I had dropped out of like indie stuff for a while, and then it was like, oh, this is Derek Yu, and I was like, I recognize that name, and I like looked him up, and I was like, oh wow, it's this guy. And like if ever if ever there was a, a guy who was going to just like pop off on XBLA, it would be like that guy. And so like I really would like to read that because he's just you know fantastic generally. So yeah, off the top of my head, um, the 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 game books that I uh, remember enjoying the most recently were the uh, the I'm not sure how to pronounce this guy's name. Fabian Sanglard uh, wrote a couple of um, one of them's called Game Engine Black Book Doom. And then there's Game Engine, Black Book, Wolfenstein 3D. And they are like book length uh, explications of of those two game engines, just going into extreme detail for however every aspect of them works. I thought they were, they were both very interesting and, and also like remarkably different for how how closely in, in time they were developed to each other. I almost forgot about it. I started reading this at one point and then fell off and then I uh, lost my key to go re-download the book. But uh, a game design companion, a critical analysis of Wario Land 4, 
by Daniel Johnson is an interesting one. Um, it's pretty much exactly what it says. It's not a strategy guide for Warrior Land 4 or talking a lot about it, but it's looking using it as an example of um, game design and looking at how all the features, you know, the intentionality behind the game mechanics and enemy design and level design and all that. You know, as not a game designer myself, I found it really fascinating how Daniel was breaking apart that and looking at those things it can be a little bit dry perhaps if you're looking for something a little different but it's not like academic either that looks really interesting yeah yeah it's really neat and i'm glad that there are deep dives like that because i think probably for people who want to do game design that kind of thing would be much more meaningful than a general game design book like one of the things that i noticed when i played like when i first played super mario galaxy um was like how much better the camera was over something like a mario 64 or super mario sunshine and a lot of it had to do with um the way that they did the level design rather than like specific like yeah the the camera is technically a lot better and it's like how it animates and moves yeah but then also their level design accounting for the camera got a a lot better too yeah yeah just the the fact that like the the fact that you go or you're always like going over the horizon means there's so much room for the camera to maneuver yeah, but then there are sort of like more flat levels too, where the camera is still just fine. Um, and that yeah, they generally they generally don't do a thing where they put you inside like this big 3D maze, like happened in Mario 64 a lot. Yeah, but like when when I was playing that, I was like, I want to read something about like this like this design space of like designing for the camera. And I was, I was listening to a lot of Idle Thumbs at the time, where they would sometimes do deep dives like this on like the the treasure goblin in diablo or whatever but um but yeah like so the, so this wario land 4 book would be i think would probably be incredible all right i've got one i've got just a couple more i want to talk about but i gotta step out of the room for a moment and grab them for for the benefit of the listener sure for the benefit of you too i'll be right back i will open my second beverage whoa i didn't even have a first i should have brought water into this room well, that's because you're a professional that's right I, I don't i don't need to drink water this is actually a thing about me um, that I that I have learned in the past few years is that I don't really have a sense of thirst. Uh, and I learned that by discovering that other people do. Other people are like, yeah, I, I when I want when when my body needs water, it tells me to drink water and I feel like I feel an urge to do so. I don't have that. Like my, my the closest thing I have to sense of thirst is like noticing signs of dehydration It's like, oh, my lips are getting dry. Okay. Yeah, I have I have that with uh with hunger. Mm-hmm. I don't like I'm I used to be a bit heavier than I am now. I don't know if that's what broke it or I know like for autistic people there's definitely a thing with reading your own body that can be a, like trouble. And mm-hmm. so I I sort of map it to that for myself. But I have that with hunger. Like I'll frequently forget to eat and not realize like think that I've eaten lunch and then realize at 4:30 that I haven't when I get when I start to get like a headache. And so like, yeah, I, I definitely, and when you try to explain to people that like, no, it's like a constant battle for me to remember to eat. They're yeah. like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And also, didn't you used to be fat? Like, how can you, how can those two things go together? And it's just like, it. they just did. Like, I can't explain it, but you have to believe me. That's, that's my experience. Yeah. yeah. To think about when Tears of the Kingdom came out, did you, <laughs> and how you forgot to eat and drink. <laughs> my mouse keeps falling everywhere. I don't have a good desk set up here. It's on the arm of my chair. You gotta get a trackball. There we go. Yeah, I need I need one for Centipede and Missile Command. Anyway, all right. 
Okay, yeah. I forgot to mention um Fan Gamer has some good books too, but I have uh Press Start to Translate. Uh, they were they were coincidence this out by Clyde Mandolin, also known as Tomato, oh, yeah. who did the Mother Three fan translation. And by all accounts, for me is you know, just a heck of a, a great person to t- uh available and everything online to talk to about that. Uh, I haven't gotten too deep into this one, but it's it's using uh Final Fantasy four as kind of a bridge to talk about translation and specifically comparing like the original translation to a machine translation to and like fan localizations but yeah the glitch out cover of <laughs> kind of tells you it's about you know what can go wrong and why and machine translation from japanese to english and yeah there's also omake books a, a french publisher has put out so this is video game related but it's before mario which is also a website this is a coffee table style book looking at a lot of uh, nintendo's toy products and uh, other things um kind of a just a selection of them but with most of the hits the various games and puzzles they did yeah, before like they you've got the ultra hand presumably they have their like lego knockoffs yeah nb blocks uh game and watch the 10 billion barrel ultra scope wasn't was it hogan's alley was there was it their like 1970s so there's the nb block they were they were building a a light gun game that was supposed to be installed in like Bowling alleys. Bowling alleys that had gone out of business. Yeah. And then there was the oil crisis and nobody drove any anymore. And yeah. so <laughs> Yep. And more to that point, there is a four volume uh, History of Nintendo series mm-hmm. by Florin Gorge. I think I'm saying that right. So they're a French publisher. Um, the first two volumes did get English releases, but they're now out of print. Um, but as of now, the second, the volume three and volume four never did. So I ended up getting the whole set in French. Unfortunately, my French is a little rusty. Um, but fortunately, the first couple of volumes um, in particular are filled with colorful pictures. And it's like the exact kind of thing I've pretty much always wanted. So the first one goes into all the pre-video game stuff, pretty much, you know, with the sides here and there. It even has pictures of like the uh, the adult erotic card decks they did because they were doing uh. all sorts of playing cards for a while. So probably one of the few books about Nintendo's with any Nintendo with any nudity in it. And then the second volume is all about game and watch. Um, and I think profiles every game as well as talking a bit about some of the knockoffs and also gorgeous, just with the photography. If you love that kind of toy design thing, that's great. And then the other ones are about the NES and the game boy. They're unfortunately, you know, unfortunately for me, who's having trouble with my French, they're a lot more text heavy um fewer pictures um but i i kind of bought them as a kickstart hey maybe i'll get back into uh learning uh getting up to stuff with my french again uh hasn't happened but they're still nice to have and great to have on the shelf so yeah so yeah like you know like with movies and uh everything it's like all my dreams are finally coming true from so it's the countdown to uh irrelevance once again (laughs) you know over the next two decades or so the other book that I would recommend, and I was reluctant to bring this up because like there are a lot of books that used to be blogs and you could just read the blog. Sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, the one that I really liked was um, 50 Years of Text Games by Aaron Reed. Ooh, I think I did hear of that. And yeah, that sounds. I, I It starts with Oregon Trail in I think 1971 and then picks an interesting game from each year since then, ending with AI Dungeon. I think it was on uh retronauts recently to talk about that so yeah oh sure yeah that makes sense yeah it, it's really 
interesting deep dives into the development and the context and the legacy of each of those games. Some of which are very, very strange. Like there's a play by mail MMO that ran until like 2017, which yeah, it's bizarre. I do I do love all the titles. How to beat the video games? Is that the the um how to win in a Nintendo games series? Uh, there wasn't a certain Nintendo. The one I have I got as a gift, and it um I think it mostly covers arcade games. Um, but I want to say some of them, it, it covers the 2600 versions, which is weird because I don't know. And it's, it's how to beat them, which we think of, you know, completing a game is, and beat kind of like synonyms. Right. But, but when you're talking an arcade game, I guess, you know, just beating a high score counts as conquering the game in some fashion. Yeah. But it's a fight and it, it just kind of ends when you decide it ends. But, but yeah, the that phrasing how to beat the video games it's probably a pretty good book i need to uh the the speedrunner um the mexican runner was doing a series uh called nes mania where he was beating every nes game and this definitely involved like inventing criteria for like okay how do you say you beat galaga yeah or miracle piano teaching system yeah well that one actually rolls credits Oh, it does. I haven't looked at all. <laughs> when you when you complete the last, when you like are marked as a a pass for the last song. I, I know there was a supercut of uh, you know the his progress over that game and like actually learning to play piano, like he actually did. Yeah, yeah. In in like two and a half weeks. <laughs> uh but like if you look at the um the amount of practice time he put in, like because he was playing like. 12 hours a day or something it's yeah. le- it gets less impressive like <laughs> if you if you'd done that practice a little bit maybe a little bit uh more if effectively yeah there was a mention of like ai dungeon and then i heard a lot of stuff before like i was i was actually hearing you guys discuss okay yeah i wasn't sure if you could hear us but oh are you there am i there yes i am okay, <laughs> okay. all right do i exist oh so i'm trying to backtrack to where we were with uh the discussion when we lost you yeah i mean that topic did go for a while so maybe we wrap and sure. move on to the poem yeah or... okay let's do that es- esper can put in uh, the signature sonic ring sound here <laughs> <laughs> okay for for this topic we're going to be reading this poem untitled by prostetnik vogon jelts uh who would like to read this poem i think it would be safest to have john b read it safest okay yeah it's, it's pr- protected I, but I don't have stairs in my house. How protected could we be? Maybe we should read it and then uh, give context. Yeah, let's read it first. Okay. Uh, so this poem is untitled. As far as I know, there are various titles given to it, but it's uh, ostensibly by Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz. O friedled grunt bugly, thy micturations are to me as plurdled gabble blotchets on a lurgid bee. Group I implore thee, my funting turling dromes, and hoopciously drangle me with crinkly bindle wordles, or I will run thee in gobberworts of my blurgo crunchin. See if I don't. So since I first heard this poem, I've I've learned what micturation means. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That was a thought I had as well. <laughs> and so now I'm wondering, like, what the other nonsense words actually mean? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when you read Jabberwocky as a kid, and you're like, what's a vorpal blade? And find out that it, like, it kind of became a thing, but then... Like Vorpal might have a meaning, and then oh like... yeah, did micturation become a word because of Hitchhiker's Guide? 
I don't uh, think so. But no, I don't think I so either, but that would be excellent. Yeah. So, so as alluded to, I was trying to find my copy of Hitchhiker's Guide so I could read it directly from it. I always remember Blurgle Crunching is Blurgle Trunching. And I don't know if that's, I don't know what's right. So I was trying to dig up a copy. Um, uh, so, yeah. Faber could recommend you a flashcard app. <laughs> yeah. So, this, this is uh, the author. Of this is actually Douglas Adams from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And for context, uh, it's supposed to be terrible uh, because one of the asides is, which make up the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that Vogons are an alien species who writes the most terrible poetry, uh, the second most terrible poetry in the known universe. But they, they do it on purpose because they like bad things, right? Like They enjoy torture. I'm not sure. Um, they they do enjoy the effect it has. Um, but I, I can't remember if, you know, as far as on purpose, if they're trying to be, yeah, it's if they're trying to be bad or they consider bad good or... Um, but they're they're a species of you know terrible bureaucracy. Uh, one of Adams <laughs> Douglas Adams' pet peeves. Uh, he wrote a whole text adventure about it called bureaucracy. Yeah, I think that like the cultural implications of that I like a lot because you see that in like the real world. Like some people really hate like uh, traditional Japanese music because it uses a different like musical scale, so mm-hmm. it sounds a little bit off, and uh, people just can't get on board with it at all. But to Japanese people or people who enjoy it, it's like, oh, this is great. Um, yeah. So I wonder, yeah, like, is this really great for Vogons? Like, are they, like, really having a great time with this? Yeah. What else? Do I have anything else to tell you to say? <laughs> I had a thought. I will say it was uh, it was fun, uh, semi-cold reading that. I hadn't gone through it to make sure I uh, could get through all the words before reading it just now. So. Uh, apologies if that was a bit halting. But Congrats! I think, I think I did okay. Yeah. So I mean, the comparison to Jabberwocky is uh, is very obvious, and I think probably invited. Um. So side thing, how did you guys feel about the Hitchhiker's Guide movie? Like, I I liked it. Like the the one that came out in the two thousands. Like, I liked it a lot. It had a scene where this poem is read, but other people seem to hate it. So I don't know. I should have watched that scene again. Um. Yeah, I liked it. I saw it in theater. Um. You know. In terms of changes, uh, every version of Hitchhikers is different than the one that came before. So, yeah, I, I remember enjoying it. I remember like everybody else who I watched it with shitting on it afterwards. So I started to doubt myself, but now that I'm in good company, uh, everybody here is cool. I can say I was right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Speed Racer. Like, uh, there's movies that at the time people were just like, I don't. This isn't any good, and then. Uh, I'm I'm like no, nah, this seems pretty good, and people are like no, nah, it's not that good, and then time is pretty kind to those. So I also had the TV series on VHS. I have no idea where I got it. Uh, the BBC series, which that aired on PBS. Maybe maybe I taped it from there for all I know. Yeah, um, which was like much more. I think it was probably based on the radio drama. Yeah, but it was very similar to the book in to or to the books. But also extremely low budget, which is part of the fun, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's the, a there's a weird thing with that where, like, didn't Red Dwarf come about in that same kind of era, or is that later? Like, there's certain kinds of these things where there's sort of overlap in not like content exactly, but in like theme, because the creators of one thing enjoyed the work of another thing, and then you get that other thing recreated in this in the medium. And so you get like Red Dwarf and like Hitchhiker's Guide, like miniseries at the same time. 
Yeah, yeah it, lo- it looks like the BBC series Hitchhiker's Guide was 1981. Red Dwarf was 1988. So it's I, I like, seven short years, you know. Yeah, I would I would say that like that's close enough that you could say that there was some influence there. Yeah, I mean the the, the UK media uh, BBC landscape is so kind of incestuous, but not in a bad way. Too, where people just hang around and do all sorts of different things. Because like Douglas Adams wrote a couple of Doctor Who episodes, and he. He's credited on one Monty Python episode, I think. Yeah, everybody knows each yeah, other. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, I, I remember reading this in, in Checker's Guide, and it's it starts out, you know, even though the uh, nonsense words are chosen for a way um, that, that sound like just gross things. I mean, you know, micturations is a gross thing, and then the things like plurtled and gapple blotchets, um, it reads as a poem, you know, there's a kind of a rhythm to it. Yeah, and then and then the the final line just like throws all that out the fucking window. It's <laughs> yeah that that's all that's always kind of been my favorite as favorite aspect. It you know it's it's attempting to be a poem, and then it just says fuck it. It's like <laughs> I think that's a great feature for you know the second worst poetry in the in the galaxy to have. Well, I think I think um, poetry should have that. You shouldn't necessarily have to have the like, uh, consistent you know timing and meter on everything because that gets boring sure. I, I i do see the value in a poem just kind of like shaking you at, at some points and being like see how well all these other lines are written see how bad this could be like yeah. just to, just to give you a sense of scale yeah i i also noticed at the bottom uh on this uh transcription of the poem on allpoetry.com uh it's tagged with humor love and pain those, those are the tags. <laughs> um, I think this is in the game too, isn't it? It's in the text adventure. I don't remember. I could, couldn't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I I believe it is. I think it's part of the Babble Fish puzzle. Like you have to uh, you have to plug your ears or something. I got like that, that far. Yeah. Yeah. There's 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 something involved with it, or it's used as a type. You know, one of the things that 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 text adventure does that's just maddening is it has timers. Yeah. Which is which is in any adventure game, but especially in a text adventure, is just seems insane to me <laughs> I, I, I i i got as far as solving the babblefish puzzle which has all these steps in it and is does have a timed element to it i did it once and then i i made it out to like open space where you can breathe for a bit um in the ship not a not open space open space <laughs> and and then i just kind of stopped playing but uh or couldn't figure out what to do yeah, there's a lot of games like that that are older where they didn't know that certain things were bad ideas like um jim i think you mentioned this once before that like uh the canonical mario 2 that was released in japan was the way it was because they were just like well we expect everybody to have finished the first mario game Mm -hmm. and so we're just going to continue and it's like you see logically how that would be the case it's for super players yeah and then in actuality like to play it is like no this feels really bad (laughs) <laughs> yeah so i feel like there's a lot of that with older games yeah although there's definitely i feel like skill inflation within genres uh even going into modern times i don't know maybe, maybe this is a bad example because this is also like a very fossilized genre but the the scrolling shooter the shmup and and this is in fact this this isn't this isn't a false assumption anymore this is true like the only people who play those games are people who've been playing it those games for 30 years yeah and so they are they are designed to be incredibly hard for that kind of person. I wish I could find an in- entry into those, but yeah, I, our type's about as hard as I go. Our type's 
our tribe's fucking hard. So like, if that's as, but it is, but it's hard in a way where like you see what's going on, right? <laughs> Actually, I actually do have a recommendation for you. Have you played Jamestown? Oh, uh, yeah. I have not yet. Uh, I, I keep meaning to. Um, I missed the limited run uh, pre-order period. I was going to grab the, the physical Jamestown that. specifically has, um, it's the only modern scrolling shooter I've seen that attempts to do onboarding. And the way it right. does it is by having a an extreme gradation of difficulty systems. And like the way, the way it works is that you can, there are five levels and I think you can only play the first three on the easiest difficulty level. And so there's a very gradual ramp up of like, in, if you want to finish the game first, you have to play on the easiest difficulty level for three levels. And then you go up, to, you bump up to the next one and then you can play four levels. And then you bump up to the next one and then you can play all the way through the game. By which point you like have actually developed a skill set. Right. Ikaruga had some pretty good uh, ramping up too, but I don't think it actually developed the skill set very well. Mm-hmm. But at least you could play it. Yeah, that was one of those where you could you could like mash continue, and then yeah. it was like, how right. few lives can I do this in? Can I? And then finally, like, can I one credit clear? And- yeah, and it would unlock more credits, but but it had a lower difficulty level too, which was pretty good. Compile shooters forever. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out here that uh, the last four seasons of Red Dwarf have been aired on the a TV channel called Dave, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess probably it's they're, they're airing on this steam game that we found earlier there you go it all connects yeah but yeah a great bad poem and uh it's funnily enough not the last time uh poetry appears in the hitchhiker's guide do we, think we want to do another topic i think we could probably fit one more topic yeah probably okay john your topic is tv shows that have, that have inspired original mathematics yes it happened more than once Wow, I get three topics in a row. Has that ever happened before? Oh, the poem doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> but I read it. Does that make it count? Uh, sure, yes. Okay. No, no, that's never happened. No one's ever talked about three different things in a row on this that's, show. Yeah. TV shows that inspired original mathematics. Um, I think the first one uh, I came upon um, was in uh, Futurama during, I believe it was the comedy, it was the comedy Central run. There's an episode where body swapping is the uh, the gimmick of it, the, you know, the, the science fiction kind of trope they're taking off on. Um, but they do it with a twist where once two bodies or a minds, a mind switch has happened between two bodies, those two bodies cannot be part of the same mind switch again. Uh, so it doesn't work backwards. And what happens during the episode is a bunch of people end up getting their minds switched. And it becomes a problem of how do we get everybody's mind back in their original body? That does sound like a math problem. Yeah. Sounds almost like Towers of, of Hanoi, right? Like, Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's a bit, it does seem a bit like that. And, uh, you know, like it might have some graph theory. I forget if there is any graph theory in it. Uh, I, I read the details, uh, some more details on it uh, beyond seeing the episode in uh, the book, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets, which goes on to cover Futurama, which is a much more math-heavy show. Um, but yeah, a number of uh, the staff, notably the writer of this episode, uh, Ken Killer, have uh, advanced degrees in mathematics. So pretty pretty loaded for a uh, crew of animated sitcom writers. But yeah, in order to write this episode, he actually had to solve the problem. <laughs> and I, I remember from the book, he had to come up with an original way 
to you know a diagram to represent what was going on yeah um and explain first that this was possible and then actually you know did the work to kind of generalize and uh on this on the infosphere.org the futurama wiki there is a proof <laughs> the proof is written out you know the possibility and also like upper bounds on how many switches it would take you know based on uh the number of switches that have already occurred and um you know the size of the the total size of available bodies as well i don't want to just read from the wiki but it's out there you can see why it does sound like like jim said it this sounds like a math problem yeah yeah I, I do feel like it's probably can be represented in terms of graph theory because you have you know you have nodes and you have edges between nodes and then you have you know rules about where edges can be drawn that represent you know the swaps right so sure it could probably can be explained in terms of graph theory yeah. maybe not maybe like not so like maybe there's a better way to think about it but i'm not a math person so i don't yeah. know but I mean, it, it seems like a natural first step right so it may turn out the proof you know is better done with this in other ways but there's certainly probably like a you know a mapping you could do that would may reveal something or at least provide a nice picture to get your head around there was that one instance um and then a more recent so this one was uh, a bit more bizarre the wired there's a wired article about it um i seem i think i saw it on twitter when it first happened uh someone linked it uh but the the article is about how an anonymous 4chan post helped solve a 25 year old math puzzle <laughs> in addition to the tv element a math problem uh, related to uh, another cartoon um we have we, we have this instance of drive-by mathematics happening so right an anonymous math post on 4chan of all places and the debate about how to cite the res the person in the results as people picked up on this aren't there like 4chan archiving services yeah it's, it's i have i feel like you have to just include the url to one of those yeah i i know that it's somewhere in the article but uh I don't prepare for this show. <laughs> so, well, I don't know what topics are going to be uh, in the bucket. Um, and it it's been, I've had this sitting in there for a while, but the wild article is pretty interesting. But yeah, the, there was a math problem arising from uh, the the melancholy of Hari Suzumiya, um, which I haven't watched, but I know has been around a while. Yeah, just quoting from there, season one of the show, which involves time travel, had originally aired in non-chronological order and a rebroadcast and a DVD version had each further rearranged the episodes. Fans were arguing online about the best order to watch the episodes, and the 4chan poster wondered if viewers wanted to see the series in every possible order, what is the shortest list of episodes they'd have to watch? So I feel like there's something to unpack in uh, what is the shortest list of episodes they'd have to watch. Um, yeah, how many episodes are we talking about here? Oh, okay. I get it. So you're kind of like nesting the watch orders, right? Um, so you have these different watch orders um, in broadcast and in... Um, uh, DVD and so on. And in the middle there is going to be the starting point of another watch order, right? So the question is how many t how many times you're going to end up having to watch the same episodes over and over right? to watch all um, uh, 14 episodes in order to have seen them in every order. Right. And um, I'll add that uh, I haven't seen the anime, but I did read some of the novel in Japanese. Uh-huh. Um, which is actually set pretty close to where I've lived in Japan, oddly enough. Yeah. And um, the thing about it is that I believe that uh, based on the story that you, 
but people might want to do this. This is not just a random thing where it's like, oh, if I could just watch all the episodes of Star Trek in a random order. Um, I think that there are story reasons why people might want to have done this. Right. You know, there's all sorts of references back one way or the other that you can follow threads if you go in a certain order. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's a it's a show. It's a thing about time travel. So and then the it's sort of like memento. So like the things happen non chronologically. So that means that you get different context from different bits, depending on the order that you watch it in. Like memento is non chronological, but it's not random. Like it, it tells you a story that is beginning, middle and end that's structured very carefully in order to like reveal exactly the information to give you a specific read on the story for, for this, it's kind of similar, but it's a bit more open-ended uh, and so they, so it's trying to solve that problem of if you wanted to get like maximal amount of context for every scene, how would you do that? Um, and it requires watching the episodes in every possible order. So th- that's an interesting thing about a lot of the math stuff that you can approach math stuff from the more theoretical end and come up with some interesting puzzles. But because we're human and we need to solve sort of different kinds of problems, you can always think that like, oh, nobody's really solving any kind of new problem. Then, you know, going back to the 70s, there's the Ron Paul problem, which was a, a TV math problem. Um, and there was a funny thing with that, where it's like, if you know who Marilyn Vaux Savant is, who had like a long running Parade Magazine column, that's kind of where one of the ways that she got her start was she she published a thing on the Monty Hall problem. And then the magazine got like like thousands of pieces of mail, some of whom from like PhDs saying that she was wrong in her solution. And then she thought about it and then she conferred with like more mathematicians and stuff. And then she was able to like prove it. Um, I... And then there's an interesting run in there with um, with Erdish where he initially disbelieved her solution, but then saw output of simulations that showed that she was correct. And, and that there's sort of a fun story there. If you search the Monty Hall problem in the history of it, that there was just a lot, there was, you know, there was some misogyny there that people just, they, they didn't believe that the Monty Hall problem could be a real problem because it was on TV in the first place. And then secondly, that it would, that this, like the novel piece of this would be pointed out and solved by a woman was at the time pretty, uh, difficult for people to grapple with right and so i i always yeah. like that one a lot too yeah should we explain the monty hall problem for uh <laughs> i mean i don't understand it fully but the monty hall problem i remember following this a bit um i don't know if when it first broke but it would come up over the years and i'd read you know her column in parade along with ask Marilyn was the name of the column um i'd read it along with like the sunday funnies and stuff so the problem based on the show let's make a deal Typically, in Let's Make a Deal, you're picking between doors that have prizes behind them. Some have prizes, and some have joke prizes. Um, for the purposes of the problem, they they say a goat, right? So, and um, this presumes that the the player does not want a goat, right? Which exactly. I, I think it's questionable. Sure. Yeah. But you know how these simplifications go in problems. Yeah. Um. So there are three doors. Um. Two of them have goats behind them, and one has the car or whatever, right? There's lots of gimmicks in Let's Make a Deal about how many chances you're given um, and the offers that are made to take a mystery item or hold on to what you have and all that. But in the Monty Hall problem, you're given a choice and then one of the doors is opened that you didn't pick. 
right? So you're given a choice. They say pick a Monty Hall says pick a door. You pick one. Okay, now we're going to reveal what was behind what you could have had um, and reveals a goat. So then the question is, you're given a chance to switch. Do you switch doors? Does that give you a better chance of winning or hitting the other goat, right? So you're given the one choice, shown the one that didn't work out, one of the two that wouldn't work, and then you're offered a chance to switch. So it turns out, you know, the solution is switching is always better. Yeah, which is unintuitive if you, if you, for the human mind, apparently, like, and I, I thought this too, like, sure, you've still got a one in three chance. You had the same one in three chance you had, a, like, before the door was opened. And the other door also has a one in three chance, right? Right. But there are some twists to that. Right. So the probability is interesting that it changes based on, um, you know, your knowledge in certain circumstances or like what's already been dealt in a game of cards and things like that. Yeah. Um, and here, part of the key is that, you know, you know, he's not going to show a car behind the door. They're going to show you missed a go. Well, that's that's the premise of this problem. That's the premise of the problem. Because, the, well, then it's not an interesting decision, right? If you're asked. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you want to switch to your to the other goat? Right, and that's not good TV. So of course that's not what's going to happen. Um, except maybe sometimes because they like to fuck with people on that show. Yeah, I have no idea like what kind of bearing the the Monty Hall problem has on the actual show. Yeah. So I mean, if you look at it from the overall context, your first choice doesn't matter, right? Your first choice. Um, but the second choice, when you started out, there were two goats. You were more likely to pick a goat. If now you're down to two doors you're more likely to have a goat, right? Because of that initial choice. So if you're given the chance to switch, you should. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The the um the way it was explained to me that made it intuitive was uh, extending it to like, what if there were a hundred doors? You pick one and then the host opens all but one other door revealing goats. goats. Yeah. Should you switch? And that's, that's a great mathematics technique too, to, to kind of push things to an extreme like that. Um, I use that when teaching a lot, kids. Um, it's a good way to show a lot of different things. Like if a kid is, uh, you know, adding numbers by counting on their fingers, then you ask them, okay, what's a thousand plus? Yeah, yeah. And then then they have to learn, they learn have to learn how to do the finger abacus plus thing. Plus 321, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe there's a better way. Or like in probability, yeah, showing to show what's going on, you just kind of increase one of the numbers and see what's happening there. Or like pushing limits and you know when talking about calculus or things like that um but yeah I, that that was always i like that problem and it always made sense to me um that her answer was right yeah i wasn't alive when it happened um <laughs> and neither were you i don't think but you know we read stuff but like sure i still don't have an intuitive sense of why her answer is right like i i understand it from a probability standpoint and uh, I do not think that she is wrong at all, but I also, I can't get my brain to figure out why. And so for me, I always slot it into these things about probability that, you know, people talk about a lot where it's like, oh man, people are really bad at probability and they don't understand that the 93% chance in XCOM is fair or whatever. But for, for me, it's always about like different kinds of probability and remembering like what is conditional probability and what is not. And right. so I, I understand it that way. Obviously, it's proved by the letters and stuff. You can be pretty great at math and probability. You have to be very careful <laughs> about the way questions are asked and stuff. Um, I think the only other thing I have to say 
the uh, the the second one we talked about, Hari Suzumiya problem, um, didn't pop up when people were deciding what order to watch The Prisoner in. That's a uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <that's all. laughs> I mean, it's it's anime nerds, you know, and this is why uh, people. I, I talk about this a lot when I talk about like language learning. That like you like horny is a good motivation, and so the people who end up <laughs> reading the best in Japanese are often people who want to read the smutty novels or play the visual novels that have the boobies in them. And um, not that like Haruhi Suzumi isn't, is not horny, but that um, drives to watch things that other people think are not worthwhile um, can lead to really interesting places because of the drive. Yeah. That absent that drive, you don't get, you know, interesting output. So, yeah, I have speaking to that. And there's somebody I've been thinking about trying to get on the show who uh, would be a perfect example of that kind of thing. Is it John Nash? <laughs> no, no. But in, in terms of drive and specifically with uh, learning something and specifically with Japanese, um, uh, the only the only foreigner to be a professional shogi player in Japan. <laughs> That's all the time we have for Topic Lords. <laughs> John, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the Internet? I'm on the Topic Lords Discord. I'm still hanging on on X, the everything app, at the same handle I was using on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> because it is literally the same place, except not. Yeah, I haven't replaced that yet, but I'm on Discord. Um, and Or you can find me in San Diego, as these two will attest. Uh, <laughs> I think I said that on the last episode. Seeing him in San Diego, I can say that he is at least close. Yes. And this said K-Favor, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Yes, uh, I am also in the Topic Lords Discord. I have, uh, I'm on X, uh, previously known as Twitter, at, at Sishet Kfaber. Um, You can follow the instructions from the last episode to find me. I also have a blue sky that I don't post to very much, but I would like to move there in the future. And I still do not yet have a have a stan of the Masto variety. So, or I sorry, a don of the Masto variety. So. Um, maybe next time when I am less busy, I can set that up. No nipple teeth. I was just going to damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for being on. Thanks as always for having me. Yeah, it was a good time. It was nice to talk to John B again. Yeah. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed Lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.